This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt, your coach, your guide on the side. We do what we can on this program to give you a leg up, help you figure out what uh, you know, what you actually need to do, what you don't need to do, where you need to focus your time, your energy. There's so many places that want your attention, so thank you for being here with us. We'll make it worth your while, we promise. Today we've got a great show. We'll be talking about um, standardized testing. You know those tests that your kids have to take? You know, you, they got to take them. And they always, the teachers before, make sure your kids get a good night's sleep. And I'm like, right, let's, why start now? And um, they've got to get in there, take those tests. Are they really helping our educational system? Or are now teachers just writing for tests? Forget learning. Are they just writing to make sure that they, uh, writing their curriculum to make sure that they get these kids to pass these tests? We'll talk about it. And, you know, should parents be able to opt out from these tests? I don't know. There's a lot of laws being passed, and uh, maybe not every law is directly uh, there to benefit a child. Sometimes it's just to keep bureaucracy in place. We'll be talking about that with uh, Dr. Anjali Welton. She'll be, she's done some research on standardized tests, and we'll uh, find out her latest research. Interesting thing, a little update on El Chapo. Uh, apparently he had an 18-minute head start. 18 minutes to a drug lord, you're done. So you drop through the shower. Once he started chipping away at the shower. And then you jump on the motorcycle. Uh-huh. And you uh, ride out, that. Out the mile-long tunnel. You ride that through the mile-long tunnel, pop out the other side, as you speculated, maybe a helicopter picked him up. I mean, seriously, all you got to do is ride 10 miles away, have a helicopter land on a football field. Football. Football. Yeah. Bada boom, bada bing. El Chapo is in Acapulco. He's in the wind. He's with his family. Everything's great. <laughs> Apparently, nobody was designated to watch him. You'd think you'd put him in a steel box. He'd be a high-value prisoner? Yeah. You'd think he'd be a high-value. At least, I mean, it's funny. They had a video camera on his cell, they have, in, they have, in his cell. Yeah. I mean, I think video yesterday surfaced of him actually dropping down the I know. hole that, and taking it's, off. It's like when you play that <laughs> stupid trick with somebody behind the couch and you act like you're going downstairs. Yes. That's what he looked like. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> He's just going down the stairs. And he got away. 18-minute head start. El Chapo, that's one smart dude. Here's another little crazy thing that I just noticed. Pulled into the parking lot, noticed this sweet-looking new car. I thought, holy cow, that car, that is nice. Who's driving that nice car? And it happens to be an American car, an Impala, a Chevy Impala. Looks like a flipping Maserati. Ish. Ish. But it's hot. My grandma had an Impala. My mom had an Impala. It was a 72 Impala. It was green inside and greener in- outside. No, I think, yeah, was that may have been like, that's the one we probably had. Maybe some sort of Naga hide covering. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, you could stand up in the back seat right. and pace. And when it turned, the whole thing would list and uh-huh. then move like yeah. a big you know, cruise ship. Like a ghetto cruise Needed a foghorn to change lanes. It was, those were the days. <laughs> but now American cars, I just want to do a shout out. That's huge. They're looking hot. 
I mean, we knew like the muscle cars were always looking good. The Mustangs, they'd make that yeah. look good, the Camaro. But you get to the family sedan right. type thing, you're like, eh, what used are to they be doing? Like, oh, yeah, we want to make a car that cops can ride around in and look right. good. But now this car, is a, this looks like, this is top line. It's hot. Anyway, we'll have to track down whose car that is. I bet it's Ben's. Ben's, Ben's probably filthy rich. He lived in Hawaii. Yeah, I know. He's still got that glow, that sun-kissed kind of glow. That's why he doesn't take much time off, because he lived in Hawaii. Yeah. Where are you going to go? He lived his whole life off. Well, I'm going to go to the national parks. Really? <laughs> it's like a desert. You lived in Hawaii. What is your problem, man? Or is it Hawaii? Hey, um, <laughs> it's Ben, by the way. We're on a, we're on a crusade to get Ben married, and um, Ben's well, not on the crusade it, yet. It is the trend of producers of the show. Yeah, but it works. Right. So I do it for him. It's an added benefit. Yeah. But the cool thing about Ben is the ladies in this office, when he walks in, they just like, you can just sense they're all holding their breath. Yeah. I don't know it's what amazing. that is. I don't know. When, when I started noticing it, I'm like, Ben? Really? Ben? All right. Ben Wasden? Well, if that's... Wasdion? Okay, guys, come on. Like, <laughs> a little bit more credit than that. Okay. It's true. You've got, whatever it is, you've got it. Just don't give it to me. Uh, let's go to our headlines. Terry South in for Kathy Akins. Te- teach us what's going on in the world. A man opened fire on a Marine recruiting station and a Marine Naval Reserve Center station. The gunman, Muhammad Yusuf Abdulaziz, 24, opened fire on two military centers in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Thursday, killing four Marines and critically wounding a Navy sailor, was not on any federal terrorism database and was not under investigation before he carried out the rampage. Abdulaziz was killed after a shootout with police during the assault, which began at 10.45 a.m. local time. It is unclear if Abdulaziz was killed by the police or if he killed himself. Investigators believe he acted alone. A motive for the attack is also unclear. Chattanooga Mayor Andy Burke on the shooting. It is incomprehensible um, to see what happened uh, and the way that um, individuals who proudly serve our country were treated. The FBI has taken the lead in that investigation. A jury has found Aurora movie theater uh, shooter James Holmes guilty of murder in the first degree. The jurors began deliberating Wednesday and were tasked with with deciding whether or not Holmes, who faced 165 or 66 charges, who's counting, was sane when he opened fire, killing 12 people and leaving 70 others injured during the midnight premiere of The Dark Knight Rises in 2012. The burden of proof fell upon prosecutors who successfully convinced jurors that Holmes was sane at the time. More than 200 witnesses were called to the stand over three months. Holmes is now eligible for the death penalty. No Child Left Behind, the law that was put into act under the George W. Bush presidency, the Senate voted 18 to, uh, 81 to 17 on Thursday to overhaul the No Child Left Behind law. Uh, it requires that schools implement strict student assessment standards to continue receiving federal funding. The new proposal would leave in place No Child Left Behind's annual testing schedule, which we'll talk about next with our upcoming guest, but let states and school districts decide whether and how to use the test to assess the performance of the schools, teachers, and students. Uh, United Airlines has awarded two hackers who spotted security holes within its website a million free flight miles each. The flight provider operated, operates a bug bounty system that rewards hackers for privately disclosing security flaws rather than sharing them online. It has given the maximum reward of a million flight miles worth dozens of trips to two people. 
This is a common practice in the technology industry where Google and Facebook also offer hackers cash incentives to report bugs privately instead of going public. Uh, A British artist was arrested last week for using an electrical plug on a London train to charge his iPhone. Hmm? Why would he be arrested? Robin Lee was handcuffed, put into a police van, charged with illegally abstracting electricity. (laughs) This was on Friday. The uh, 45-year-old artist was confronted on the train by a police community support officer who said he was taking the electricity illegally. A transport for London spokeswoman uh, says on board uh, the London train, signs near the plugs point and state that they are for cleaner's use and not for public use. Wow. So he got arrested for charging his phone. That's crazy. Well, that doesn't doesn't have to be solved. That you got to solve that problem. I'm going to say there is you, an issue there. You'd think you'd give away electricity to keep patrons happy. You would think. Hmm. So he got a, he was arrested. I've done that actually. I've stolen electricity. Nice, so Ben. It was way bad. I was on my mission too. Where did so you just like ran an extension cord from the neighbor's house into your house? No, it was at a blender? train station. It was horrible. Mm. Really? Yeah. We but were, they did they consider it illegal? Where you were? Well, we were scared to death. Like, we needed our phone charged, but we, we thought someone was going to, like, arrest us or something. It's horrible. Wow. But you didn't get arrested? No. But you're admitting it now? Well, now that I'm in America, not in Germany, yeah. yeah. Why don't you, you know what? <laughs> how much How much did you owe? Let's just pay up. Yeah. <laughs> just give me the money and I'll get it to him. I'll give you, like, 50 cents after the show. 50 cents. See, that's how, how are you ever going to well, know? Well, it's a euro, so it's, like, 30 cents. But is it or a is crime? It 90 cents? If it's know. if it's under fifty cents, is it a crime that anyone would prosecute? Is that a what the, is the that? Artist, the artist, the artist, the artist claims theft? that the woman that arrested that uh, detained him was being overzealous. Sure. And the other police officer just sort of went along with it because, well, she was insisting. And he says when he was being booked that the police officers were like, this is ridiculous. What are we doing? And it's like Barney Fife. It. It's something Barney yeah. Fife would pull out. Absolutely. And then everybody just went along with it instead of somebody stepping in and stopping it. But, yeah. But, I mean, imagine the day, though, that you are pulling up to charge your car and you're draining somebody's <laughs> electrical grid. There's, that's a day we're going to have to start having some laws about how you can steal electricity. Hmm. That's scary stuff. Who would have thunk? Who'd have thunk it, folks? Hey, we're going to take a break, come right back, and get into standardized testing. You know, all of our kids are taking these tests in school. And, uh, you know, from the no child left behind kind of world, we want to make sure everyone's progressing. But do the standardized tests actually help improve our children's learning? Is this just a bureaucratic thing that we're doing to make sure, you know, everybody's covering their rear ends and how making sure that they're, you know, doing their job? Or is it really for the children? And uh, we'll be talking to an expert on it that's done some studies recently. And some of the some of the answers might be quite surprising to us. Anyway, just trying to give you the background, folks, the background on life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, every state has their own version of yearly standardized testing for their children. 
and, uh, you know, some way to assess how the students are learning. Teachers spend months preparing their students for the test. Many don't even understand the meaning of the test. But what, you know, what does it really mean? these scores and and do the scores and the testing does it actually improve our children's education or are there other reasons other issues about the testing that uh, that we might want to understand a little bit better to uh, to help us understand the world of standardized testing we've asked Dr. Angele uh, Welton to join us assistant professor in education policy organization and leadership at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign Dr. Welton thank you so much for joining us Thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning to you. And talk to us about uh, this testing. I mean, I know you've done a lot of research on it. What what really is, what's the goal of these standardized tests that our kids are taking? Well, presently, um, the goal is with a uh, race to the top and um, the emphasis on the Common Core state standards. Um, the goal is to increase college readiness. And the hope is that um, these standardized testing will be an indicator of whether or not um, students are prepared for college and career. Um, There's a large concern that um, students, once they get into college, whether it's a community college or a four-year college, um, there's too much money spent into remediation, Um, students having to take remediation test um, and also having to uh, retake (laughs) classes um, that they took in high school um, while they're in college, and that's costly. And so I guess that's kind of the premise, the rationale behind um, Common Core State Standards and then um, the uh, assessments attached, the state assessments attached to um, those standards. And here in the state of Illinois, um, we are currently configuring and working out how to implement PARC, which is the Partnership for Assessment of Readiness for College and Careers. And so, um, I mean, we just literally, districts are um, configuring how to implement this, and so time will tell um, what the outcome of that will be. (laughs) So it's really really designed with the new kind of Common Core curriculum, you know, the nationwide Kids should be hopefully learning the same thing, and then if they learn it and pass these tests, then that should make it so they're, they're they, they should be able to get credit and more easily be able to kind of go to college and not have to make up classes, not have to so that everybody's more on the same page, right? That's the goal. Yes, that's the general premise of it, and then of course, I mean, we're in an era um, in terms of educational policy making where. Business business leaders are more involved. Yeah. <laughs> they want to have more of a stake in education, and so um, that was kind of the you know the idea behind the development of the Common Core standards is that business leaders were also involved in developing these standards and um, wanted to have a say of how students are prepared and making sure that we have students who are prepared for the workforce and the the jobs that. <laughs> You know the jobs of the future. Do you, do you sense, just based on your research, your studies, are, are is the testing is it is it working? Is it actually driving better education? Is it driving for these results we, we're talking about? Well, I don't. I mean, I don't think we have enough evidence out there yet to really determine yeah. <laughs> whether or not it's working. Because, as I said, um, 
I mean, districts, especially here in Illinois, are just trying to figure out how to implement. Yeah. <laughs> are in the process of working working on implementing um, the state the new state assessment attached to the Common Core standards or the Illinois Learning Standards. Um, so time will tell whether or not um, this is an indicator of whether students are more prepared for college and career. I will say this: um, I think I think um, the fatal flaw of educational policy is um, we place too much emphasis on you know narrowed measures, um, narrow indicators of student performance, and we don't look at the big picture and don't look at the issue systemically. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's more to being you know, prepared for college and career than a single test. We also need to look at whether or not um, districts and schools are creating a culture um, for college going. Um, yeah, I mean, you got you, know you got to be ready for it, right? You got to be psychologically ready for it. Yes, yes. Are they, you know, from early on, from early grades, are they... Um, you know, giving students the hopes and the dreams <laughs> to want to go to college. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, are they providing the resources to help help them apply and prepare to think about scholarships, um, et cetera? So there's a lot more involved in, in preparing for college than, than just um, a single test. See, I have I have family members that are teachers and. This whole this whole idea of the the testing it changes their game a, a lot. It changes how they think about this, especially because you know they might they're they're worried that their jobs are going to be on the line in some way or another. That it's it's it, it might actually be te- warping uh, how they teach or or what curriculum they're doing because they've got to get through certain things. Do, do you see that in your work in your research? That it is impacting teachers and how they, you know, formulate their their approach. Well, I, I really think that that is context specific. I think it's a state by state case and it's a district by district case in terms of how the state and the district how much stake they want to put into these um, statewide standardized tests. Um, with the, you know, most states right now are implementing. Um, teacher evaluation system and you know it's a state by state district by district basis on how they want to implement and structure their teacher evaluation processes and um, whether or not um, with the teacher evaluation system whether or not um, districts are allowed to use multiple assessment indicators Hmm. um, in how they evaluate teachers and whether or not teachers are able to use different types of assessments to determine um, whether students are, are learning and how students are learning in the classroom. Um, so it really is pretty much it's state by state. Now, it's interesting because Common Core is handed down more from the federal level, isn't it? Um, well, I mean, it's up to the states whether or not they want to adopt, to adopt Common it. Core. <laughs> yeah, but see, yeah. so it's interesting if we're going to try to create. Uh, I mean, a university system where everyone, where my child could go from Utah to Illinois and basically be able to enter at the same standard level, um, it seems like we'd have to be on the same page, state by state. How, how does that? How does that happen? Gosh, that's a <laughs> that's a tough question. Um, that's a tough question. 
um, I, I think it's a catch-22 because on one hand, yes, you want to kind of have, you know, similar measures across, you know, across states in terms of how students are evaluated and the skills that they, um, you know, they need to be able to be tested on and in order to be prepared for college. But at the same time, um, each state, each district has their own needs. Yeah, your own local issues, right. You have local issues. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a catch-22. Yeah. It's, uh, it is. It's interesting because then th- this is kind of part of, I guess, the dilemma, huh? Because we then throw out the no child left behind kind of idea that we're going to make sure everybody's taken care of. There's federal you know, monies that are coming down. There's a lot of states wanting that, that are all trying to vie for that money, but then they don't yeah. want the national standards necessarily to be governing the local standards. But it's just really it. It's kind of a, it's a complicated issue, isn't it? A lot of hands yeah. in the pie. Yeah, it's a very complicated, and um, you know, I'm not. I still need to read up on what the Senate decided with the reauthorization of ESEA. Yeah. Um, but the but the goal is more flexibility for states. Yeah. Um, in fact, I guess that was it. Senators <laughs> voted 81 to 17 yeah. to pass yeah. the Every Child Achieves Act which transfers more decision-making power to the state and local authorities. I mean, so, I mean, in a way, I guess that's, that's what a lot of people have been crying for, wanting. So yeah. we're, trying, we're trying to – the federal government is trying to learn. <laughs> Slow and steady, huh? Well, let's take, yeah. a, let's take a break. We're talking again with Dr. Anjali Walton, Welton, who is uh, a researcher and a professor at uh, the University of Illinois uh, at uh, Urbana-Champaign. And she's helping us just understand this concept of standardized testing. It, it it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting I don't know problem because we want our kids tested. We want our teachers to feel the obligation to make sure they're handing out what needs to be there. But uh, a lot of pushback on 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 a variety of different levels. We'll continue the discussion after the break, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, everybody from the president, your legislators, your congress, your congress people, to the state and local level, to your teachers, to your, you name it, superintendents of schools, whatever you've got, all the way down to parents and students, everybody's got an opinion on, on standardized testing. And it's interesting, it seems like all of the opinions tend to be kind of, uh, you know, at odds with each other, just depending on what level you're on. For some, they're just tired of their kids taking tests uh, that maybe don't mean anything, that uh, that aren't enhancing the learning. But others, you know, it's the only way to prove, right, that progress is taking place, that growth is there. 
Plus, are all of these tests uh, actually meeting the needs, the dynamic needs, uh, and the diverse needs of, of all of our students? Joining us today is Dr. Anjali Welton, a professor, assistant professor in education, policy, organization, and leadership at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She is joining us today to help us understand standardized testing a little bit better. Dr. Welton, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Great to have you here. When, when we think about these tests... Um, does just overall because if every state has a test there there are a lot of testing companies making money on tests too as well i'm assuming yes <laughs> so so i mean in a, in a way too it's I, I it's just such an interesting dynamic to me because the these tests the kids take they 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 have to take them i guess i'm assuming like twice a year but but teach us teach us the benefit or how are the tests being used with the students and kind of like at the state level what are most what are most states trying to do with these tests? Um, well, right now, like I said before, I mean we are just districts are just now <laughs> they just started implementing um, Park the Partnership for Assessment of Readiness for College and Career. Um, this past spring um, was the first administration um, of that new statewide standardized test. So, so it's pretty new. Who knows? Yeah. yeah, it's pretty new. So who knows how it will be used? It, and um, districts were just really trying to figure out how to implement it, um, how to how to actually go through the process of having students take the test. Um, the technology issues involved with taking the test. Yeah. They have the resources um, to implement the test. Um, so right now they're just trying to figure all that out. Is um, so I don't. I, I, yeah, I, there really hasn't been a lot of conversation about um, how it will how it will be used to inform instruction. I think in terms of informing instruction, most of the conversation has been around the teacher evaluation process mm-hmm. and um, looking at student growth through that. That policy and the the various assessments, formative assessments, um, district-based assessments, assessments that teachers make in their own classrooms, um, and using those assessments to help inform learning and help teachers think about um, ways that they can meet their their students' needs and actually, you know, form dialogue and conversation around student learning. <clears throat> is is this where the teachers? Um... Are they when they look at this and they and they have this whole new protocol sent down like park? Do do they look at it like oh boy, here we go again? Because it, it just seems like that you know no child left behind had its own list of requirements, changes, adaptations that eventually had to filter down. Do do they just see this as just another bureaucratic thing they have to do, or do you sense overall that teachers you know sense that this is a this is important. This is this is a a, a positive moment. Um, I think that, like I said, there isn't really a lot of research out there yet because <laughs> we're just starting to implement this. Um, but I do most of my courses. I teach um, people who are preparing to be principals and superintendents. Mm-hmm. So um, they're all, you know. They're in school, working in schools full time while they are also going to school. So we talk about this a lot in our courses. Um, 
and those who are still full-time classroom teachers, they see the common core standards as, as beneficial and some of the curriculum that's, that's attached to the common core standards. They do see that as beneficial and really getting them, pushing them to think about their teaching in new and different ways and um, looking at the way students um, are able to problem solve in more complex ways. So they do see the benefits of that. Mm. Um, but I think also educators, they're, they're used to this policy climate. I mean, I think they've gotten used to having, you know, one initiative, one reform initiative after the other yeah. um, being imposed upon them. So, I mean, that, that's, that's uh, important to know, right? Because they're yeah. constantly bombarded with the next yeah. policy. So, so I think that they're, <laughs> they're used to just focusing on what's important. Um, focusing on instruction, good instruction, focusing on establishing good relationships with students, with families. Um, and so I, mm. I think that they're used to yeah. <laughs> they're but, used to the the constant revolving door of, of school reform initiatives. And so because of that, you know, trying to shield themselves. <laughs> yeah. Um, it it seems like there's a a disconnect. Because yes. the, the the disconnect between the the governments, the the agencies at state, local, federal levels, they're all trying to you know create their standard, and yet these poor teachers are kind of the end of the whip. Where um, you know a little flick of the wrist at the federal level creates a yeah. pretty strong whip at the teacher level. I mean, to be honest, teachers don't really have much say in what goes on. Um, in terms of policy planning at the state and at the federal level, um, they don't really know a lot about the big picture of what's happening um, at Capitol Hill. Right. Because they're so focused on trying to implement good instruction. Yeah. Um, they're, they're, they're at the front lines, and that's what they're focused on. And they... Um you know they're they're strongly represented they have strong kind of you know unions or groups but yeah but but still it's again i always think of uh, you know all politics is local so yeah when it comes right down to it i'm the one i'm going to walk into my son's class and meet my son's teacher and see her stressing out about these tests um let alone my son stressing out do these tests have any bearing these standardized tests have any relation or bearing on ACTs and SAT scores? It seems like if most universities are screaming for really strong ACT and SAT scores, it seems like all testing should lead to that space, to that moment, to that test. Um, I mean, there isn't any indicator that I know of of whether or not these statewide standardized tests are connected to ACT or SAT um, test score improvement. Um, I know here in the state of Illinois, um, districts still, you know, implement a lot of the tools that ACT Inc. provides in terms of helping students determine, um, you know, what skill sets that they need to be college ready to help students establish what their um, interests are. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of assessments that students can use to kind of establish what their what their interests are in terms of preparing for college, what subject, what um, major they might be interested in, et cetera. And so districts are still implementing 
those tests and using those tools <clears throat> here in the state of Illinois. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's such an interesting. Uh, it's just, it is. It's 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 a soup. <laughs> Quite yeah. honestly, it's a stew. I, yeah, I will say this. Um, just kind of a. I teach a course um, called, called Political and Cultural Context and Education to folks who are preparing to be um, principal school administrators. And we do, we talk a lot about um, how educational policy is portrayed in the media and how um, parents are getting their information. And I, and I will say this, there is a lot of confusion. I think that um, parents are conflating the common core standards with the actual testing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's, that's causing us to lose sight of what's important. Um, I, I do think that um, the standards are pushing teachers to really think about their instruction, and it, it is providing some good tools for teachers. And so I, we shouldn't lose sight of that and kind of muddle. Right, right. Yeah, just because you don't like Common with, Core, right? Yeah, with the testing. Those yeah. are two different. Those are two different things. The well, testing is separate from the standards. We've been testing forever anyway. Yeah, we yeah, may as well yeah. test on what we're supposedly going to hold as the standard. It's yeah. it's just interesting. Sometimes I wonder, like, again, so we do all of this Common Core, we do all of this work, and yet your son or daughter still has to pass the ACT and SAT to get into a school. Mm-hmm. And yet if there's not – and that SAT and ACT probably wasn't written to Common Core. And, you know, I mean, so it's – or maybe it was. Maybe I'm just ignorant yeah. there. But I guess in the end, it's like we've got five different things we're trying to accomplish. Yes. And so that's my whole premise in terms of, you know, originally uh, my research on testing, um, statewide testing, I I wasn't focused on test statewide testing. I was actually focused on um, college readiness and creating a college-going culture yeah. for, for students. That's um, one of my research areas is looking at issues of college access for um, students of color and low-income students. And so when I was conducting case studies of high schools, um, I, I noticed how the focus on standardized testing kind of minimized the college-going culture and prevented school administrators from looking at the issue systemically. Mm-hmm. And so, like, like you said, it's more than just the, the statewide test. Um, to fully prepare students for college. You know, we we need to look at um, ACT and SAT preparation. We need to look at whether or not we're providing a rigorous um, curriculum. Are we um, talking about college going in the actual instruction? You yeah. Know, are we providing college application support? Are we po- providing college financial aid support? See, I mean, it seems so like to me. Looking at this issue holistically, yeah, an inner city youth needs a different tool set, maybe to get to college and survive in their environment mm-hmm. than than another than I don't know than than some other students. So it has to almost be there has to be enough freedom to the local level to be able to adapt to their people, exactly, and yet make sure that uh, you know we're prepared for all the big pieces. Exactly, exactly. And did you find that in your research then, that the testing itself doesn't necessarily facilitate college readiness? um, Not if it's preventing. I mean, it 
it, it's all based on um, how states and districts are going about implementing mm, and, yeah. and their implementation processes. So if they're narrowly implementing, if they're just focusing on the, the um, prescriptively focusing on the statewide test, then yes, it is going to hinder um, college readiness. Yeah. But if, if in the implementation process, if the state and the district is really looking at the big picture, um, then I think it's, it is possible for um, statewide accountability and standardized tests to work in con- concert with focusing on college readiness and careers. That's good. What should we do just as the average parent uh, Dr. Welton, what should we do, you know, um, to, to make sure our children are ready, that our, our kids and their friends are ready? What could we do to influence the system better? Um, support teachers. Yeah. <laughs> Number one, support teachers. They are, uh, man, I, they're really being, I feel like they're really being villainized right now, and we really need to support teachers. They are trying to think deeply about um, making sure that they're offering good quality instruction for students. And so I think support teachers in doing that. Um, also support schools and districts in, in terms of making sure that we're looking at issues of college access holistically. Um, asking, you know, your high school administrators, your principals, your superintendents, do you have a college and career center that's providing um, financial aid resources to students, college applications, support? Um, are, your call, are your high school counselors, are they meeting with the students regularly? Um, asking, as a parent, asking those questions. Are, are they meeting with your student regularly? And not just talking about um, scheduling their courses, but are they also talking about their future college plans. Yeah. Um, also meeting with the teacher and asking their teachers, how are you infusing discussions about college um, in the instruction? I mean, it's great advice. Really, it's, it's, this yeah. is basic stuff, isn't it? Just, just stay <laughs> yeah, on it. So really pushing and asking questions of um, school administrators to make sure that they are looking at the big picture in terms of preparing kids for college. College and 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 job, right? College and and pref- job and career. Yeah, and career. career. Yes, I, I think it it really is. It's and it's again, parents. We should do the best we can. And you're not just fighting for yourself; you're kind of fighting for everyone. Dr. Angelie Welton, we so appreciate it, and keep up the great work in trying to sort through this crazy uh, thing we call standardized testing. It's such a. It's again, I think it's a pretty great example of what happens when everybody's hand is in the pot. And uh, everyone's trying to make a name for themselves. But in the end, at some point, it's still maybe the teacher down on the end that gets the whip. Um, It's tough stuff, folks. And uh, we need to be more involved. Don't just complain about it. And don't just think you know. Uh, Figure it out. Let's go go start influencing people more effectively. We don't have to beat somebody down to get our point across. We're going to take a break, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll keep uh, trying to understand life and uh, give you a leg up. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. 
back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I think just as we reviewed standardized testing and the entire uh, the, d- the dilemma, the situation that's going on with standardized testing, it's a perfect microcosm of, I think, you know, anything national that we're trying to do in this country where everybody's got a hand in it from the federal level um, to the education department or the Department of Education to your, your local – to your senators, to your congresspeople, to the local leaders, to your governor. Every state wants to have their own way of going about educating. Sure. I think it's a brilliant idea. You got to still educate on the local level, Right. But should there be standards on a national level that we all agree we're going to live up to? Well, yeah, but Common Core is a crock. (laughs) Okay. So we won't call it Common Core. Again, everybody's going to have issues with whatever we do. So if you try to create a national standard, someone's going to have issue with it. And yet it still has to be applied and implemented on the local level. This is all – this is complexity. And then think of your child and think of how each one of your children are so different from the, from the next. And your child may not test well. Uh, your child may not – may be more anxious, may be more sensitive, so they're more distractible. And the minute they know a clock is ticking for them to do this section, they may break down. I have family members that are horrible. I was horrible at testing. But I got it. I could totally get it. But put me in a group. I'll lead the group. I can get a discussion going. I've I've got a lot of skills, but maybe they're not necessarily being measured. And does it matter? So in the end, how do we ever get on the same page with any of this without beating up the teachers, as we just heard? A lot of the teachers feel like they're being vilified for, for these decisions that are being made by every other person but the teacher. It's a hard situation, isn't it? And you know what? We can, again, just like we're used to doing, polarize the entire issue. But when it comes right down to it, your kids deserve better. Your kids deserve to be able to go to high school. And if they can get credit out of high school that applies to their general education in a university, for heaven's sakes, let's make it apply. Why on earth are we making them go through two more years, basically, of general education after they just spent four years of general education in high school? Well, it's harder. Well, it might be more valuable to actually teach these kids how to be students for a year. Let's have one year of being a student and learning how to learn. And you could teach a lot of great stuff, writing. You could teach speech. You could teach some you know, communication tools. You could teach study habits. You could teach rhetoric. I don't know. You could just teach a bunch of stuff to just teach them how to learn in this new age of constant information. We don't do that. Instead, we just make them do general eds. But they've been doing general learning forever, and yet they aren't necessarily getting credit. Would it not make sense that we cut the costs of our our graduate or our university programs by eliminating some of the general ed and making sure that's being taught down in the lower levels? It seems like that makes sense. Now, we'd have to agree on that. And the sad thing is, if my child's going to try to get into BYU, which, by the way, is a very difficult school to get into, has some of the highest ACT scores, highest grade point averages in the country, and um, 
but if my child wants to go here, boy, it'd be great if that if they could also get into, you know, Iowa, get into the great universities in any state. Wouldn't it make sense that it just applies? So you got to decide, folks. Do you want do you want a national standard at all? And if so, how do we do a national standard with local implementation? It's a tough. It's a tough thing, and I think in the end. It's who it matters the most to because most of the people, most of the kids who have parents that are really worried about this, they're going to be fine. It's I worry about the kids that don't have parents that are worried about it because they can't – they've got to go work 15 hours a day just to make ends meet. What about them? Who's looking out for them? Anyway, tough stuff, folks. And, you know, as complicated as it is, I guess – Hug your kids, work with your kids and their friends. And and if you're going to fight the good fight, be informed. Don't just name call and don't just assume because somebody likes Common Core that they don't necessarily like America. <laughs> and don't assume that anybody that's a teacher is just getting free money for their job. Don't We don't need that. We need to solve the problems. Lose the name calling. Interesting stuff. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back next hour. More ideas, more tools for you. Next hour, we're going to be getting into, uh, you know, your brain, motivation, learning. We're going to be figuring out how you motivate somebody. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, it's Friday. It's Friday. Is it Friday? Wow. It's Friday. You got a great weekend coming up. You know what you're going to be doing? I know what I'm going to be doing. You may recall a few weeks ago, I, uh, I, I would, what do you call it? I rototilled my garden, and it literally beat the crud out of me. But it was four and a half hours of rototilling. And just so you know, just took my garden down to dirt. And a lot of people are like, wow, it seems like you're a little behind for planting a garden. You know what? I'm about 10 years behind for planting a garden, so... I'm taking my garden out. I'm done. Done. I'm going to put sod on my garden. I'm sodding over. So I had it all rototilled. It was perfect. Man, pristine, just raw dirt. Ready, just needed to be smoothed out. Then we installed some sprinklers. Life was good. Wow. The guy said, let's let's let the water, let's just let some water uh, soak this thing for the next you know, week or two. Get some water into the ground. Sure. Okay, that's a great idea. Well, you know, you let water soak on a on a garden that used to have a ton of weeds in it, and guess what grows? Weeds. I've got all new weeds again. Flip! Makes me so mad. Ugh. That's why you don't garden. I know. I know. I didn't... Resist gardening. That's why I want nothing. I want either grass or cement. No dirt. You My... could paint the cement green... That's not a bad Maybe idea. some illusion of grass. Yeah, but it's, it's expensive to cement your entire yard. I would need to paint my cement brown, and then it would look like my grass. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so there you go. 
Just to mimic the season. You just might want to turn on a sprinkler. Well, I do, but it doesn't seem to do anything. Mm. Like, I mowed the green parts in my backyard yesterday. It took about five minutes. Usually, <laughs> it's supposed to take about a half hour because it's kind Little of a big clumps patch. of green. Yeah, I just went over here, did this one, or did this one over here. and Oh, that's just sad. Kind of a waste my of time. My lawn has never been better. It'll never be, looked better. It'll be back in September, just like every other yours year. Just, yeah, yours is like hibernates in yeah. the summer. Yeah. Well, I get to go. I'm going to rototill up green weeds and then have my kids follow me, pull the weeds. Then I'm going to nuke it. We're going to set off a nuclear device. So if you do hear of a nuclear device going off in uh, you know, southern Salt Lake County. That was your fault? That was me taking care of my weeds. <laughs> then I'm going to lay down the grass. Don't worry. It was just Matt. It was just me. He's fine. Nobody died. Radiated? Yes. Death, no. When you're done rototilling, don't you feel, like, muscular? Uh-huh. Don't all your muscles well, just no. kind of explode? Muscles, you, you, singular, you're, you're yes. you kind of swole? Yeah, I'm you just- get, you, I'm It's ripped. like you walked out of the gym, you're like, oh, I'm huge. No? no? Right. My rototiller takes me for a ride. I feel like I just hang on and it just starts whipping me all over the garden. <laughs> I must be doing it wrong. It's a Tom and Jerry cartoon all of a sudden. No, it really is. Yeah. I mean, and so that's my weekend. I'm so excited. I'm I mean, a lot of people don't do stuff like that. I'm going to go see Ant-Man. Oh, boy. That'll be my weekend. In fact, coming up today at the at about 8.45, uh, we will be talking with Rod Gustafson, who is Parent Previews. He's our, our movie reviewer, for, and he gives us kind of a view of movies and if they're you know, safe for our kids. Yeah, but to Ant-Man, he's going to be uh, reviewing, which, by the way, uh, Terry here has done nothing but talk about for for like months. So he's a guy, and his suit allows him to shrink really small, but he keeps like super superhero strength, mm. and he can talk to ants. Now I've seen the I've seen the preview for it. It's really cool. Yeah. Except before when you explained it to me, I thought geeky. Oh, it is. But now it, I'm like I'm excited to see it. Yeah. I'm, is it out this weekend? Yes. So I will go. I will go see that. Hence my tickets that I've had for a week. Hence, is that why you're wearing your Ant-Man yes, outfit? Yes, my Ant-Man outfit. The, the helmet is kind of making difficult yeah, the helmet's gotta functioning be hard. in the office. It's not the helmet. Time. It's actually the tights that are weirding me out. <laughs> Those might be a little awkward. but it's Totally awkward. It's all right. And now Ben's like, in fact, in the break, he's like, can, I, I, can I, I wear tights? I've never felt freer. Yeah, really? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> it's not the tights. It's the tights with the cape and the helmet. It's the whole Sorry. ensemble that gets you going. Hey, uh, so now you got to do your job. Do uh, Terry's going to walk us through what's coming up or what is in the headlines. 24-year-old Muhammad Yusuf Abdul Zez opened fire on a Marine recruiting station and Marine Naval Reserve Center Station in Ch- Chattanooga, Tennessee on Thursday uh, morning killing four Marines, killing or uh, critically wounding a Navy sailor. The attacker was, uh, he was killed in the incident. He was not on any Federal Reserve database and was not under investigation before he carried out the attack. A motive in the attack is unclear. Abdulaziz was born in 1990 in Kuwait. He's a naturalized U.S. citizen. He lived with his parents. His father is a Chattanooga City employee. A, uh, here's some more comments from the Chattanooga Police Chief Fred Felcher on the response. There were numerous Chattanooga and Hamilton County officers who responded. Uh, they, they arrived on the scene extremely quickly, and they actively and enthusiastically engaged this brazen criminal. I thought that was a uh, odd way of putting it. They enthusiastically. 
engage the uh, the guy yeah. that was opening fire. Sheesh. Apparently, he never left his car. He drove up to the recruiting station, which was in a strip mall, fired 30 shots through the windows, and then moved on to the other facility, drove through a fence. Yeah. And the, you see on on uh, the TV, the video, you'll see there's this huge fence, and it's all dented, and his Mustang is sitting there. And apparently, he sat in the convertible and just fired shots. Kind of a drive-by possible terrorist yes. attack. At the second locations where he, he shot the four individuals. There was also a police officer shot in the foot, I believe, and then another person was injured also in the shooting. So. Man alive. FBI is investigating. James Holmes was found guilty of the first-degree murder Thursday and the deaths of 12 people at a Colorado theater three years ago and now faces the possibility of being sentenced to death. Nine women, uh, The nine-woman, three-man jury decided Holmes was not insane in the shooting and uh, it goes on that says he was found guilty on 24 counts of first-degree murder, 140 counts of attempted murder, mm. and similar counts, uh, one explosives count. The proceedings next move is sentencing in which Holmes could face the death penalty that begins Wednesday and is expected to take about a month. The uh, jury foreman is a survivor of Columbine. Oh, wow. I heard that yesterday on the news. Oh, that's traumatic to have to go through that. And he, that he felt he he didn't want to do it, but he felt like if he was on the jury, that he could add something that's to the proceedings. Boy, that's so a hero, right there. That's cool. He went through with that. The U.S. has the world's highest incarceration rate, and the ACLU recently commissioned a poll to examine the public attitudes on it. They found that the majorities of both political parties, fifty-four percent Republicans, seventy-one percent Independents, eighty-one percent of Democrats, agree that it's important to reduce the prison population. 69% of all Americans held that view. In addition, a fully 87% of respondents said that drug addicts and the mentally ill should be in treatment, not prison. Yes. While 77% said prisons are likely to cause nonviolent criminals to reoffend due to poor rehabilitation techniques. We should be number one in reha- rehabilitating our prisoners and getting them the mental health they need. Wouldn't that be amazing? That's next. Next. We're going to push on that one. That's going to happen. One of Google's self-driving car prototypes was involved in a collision while navigating a public road, the company said Thursday. The Lexus SUV prototype was rear-ended in Mountain View, California on July 1st with three Google employees in the car. The employees complained of minor whiplash symptoms and were treated at a hospital. The driver of the other car also complained of neck and back pain. More than 20 Google prototypes are being tested on public roads. The collision was the 14th accident in six years and part of a round of 1.9 million miles of testing. So well, they, but, they, they're out there. They're in the public. Yeah, they're but they're the public, not, they didn't so. cause that. It's always they just, pretty much every accident has been because there are humans driving other cars. Well, the funny thing is there's three of them driving one car with computers and all these devices, right? Well, they're in there monitoring what it's doing yeah. and testing in the system. So that, there's probably not a safer car on the planet than that car. It says in 11 of the of the 14 accidents, the car was rear-ended by a, a human driver, according to the company. Oh, my heavens. Well, think of that. What, nine, how many – you're sitting there. You're just trying to get through life, and all of a sudden you got three guys driving your car because you're Google – and you got a quarter of a person driving the car behind you because he's eating his bagel and yeah, a quarter of the checking staff. his text. <laughs> Rear engine. Bam. This one is especially for you, Matt. Yeah. I saw this and I thought this what? fits exactly oh, what Matt good. needs. good. Let's see. Ador, Spain. Huh? A Spanish mayor has become the first in the country to issue a proclamation creating an official afternoon nap time for <gasps> the entire city. Ah. <sighs> The mayor, Valencia, declared 2 to 5 p.m. 
as the official time for the city's residents to, okay. to take their afternoon siestas. The edict asks residents to keep quiet during the siesta hours, <laughs> and the mayor recommends children be kept inside to prevent noise from traveling into open windows. The mayor said nap time was chosen due to the high afternoon heat, making 2 to 5 p.m. the ideal time to take a break from working in the fields. Yes. Vittoria said there will be no penalty for violations. The edict should be treated as merely a suggestion rather than an obligation. So you're not forced to nap. This isn't nap time like in my preschool. Right. But then after, I guess, 5 o'clock, you got to get back to work and you owe them three hours. That's right. So you just ex- extended your workday three hours. Yeah, but you got a nap. But you got a nap. Oh, man. So whatever you'd like to do. And it's, it's a proclamation and you yeah. can do it if you want. Well, he sounds like a wonderful man. <laughs> what a great – see, that's politics in action right there. Politics in action. Hey, we're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, we'll be joined by Dr. Bobby Hoffman, and uh, he's going to be teaching us about motivation. Have you noticed you're just, you know, you're not doing what you need to be doing? He's going to talk to us about motivation and learning performance. Very interesting stuff uh, coming out of the University of Central Florida. We'll take a break. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to help you grow your life one one segment at a time. Just stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we're halfway through the year at this point, and I hate to do it to you, but I'm going to do it. Here we go. You remember those goals and New Year's resolutions that you wrote down back in January? How are you doing, folks? Have you uh, conquered all of those, conquered all of those, or are you just, uh, did you give up on those a couple days later? Because if you haven't, you're not alone. If you haven't been working on them, you're pretty normal. It's tough to keep the motivation up to meet goals. Our guest today, Dr. Bobby Hoffman, is going to talk to us about motivational science and the best strategies for you to accomplish your goals. He joins us now live. Dr. Hoffman, welcome to the show. Good morning, Dr. Townsend. How are you? Excellent. Great to have you. I mean, this motivation, it's its the most basic human thing, isn't it? We've, we've got to be motivated to succeed in life or we're just going to, you know, just become, what, average? Uh, well, <laughs> most people don't think they're average regardless of what that's, they accomplish or what they do. That's true, isn't it? We think <laughs> we're the bomb. And, and that's, that's part of the puzzle here because there's a lot of misconceptions about motivation and how you get motivated and who's responsible for motivation and how it originates and what kind of strategies you should actually use to accomplish the goals, assuming you've actually set realistic goals. Is it, this is what you call motivation science? Well, I would call it motivational science. It's kind of grounded in research about human behavior and learning. Um, the last 40 years or so have been kind of the um, springboard for motivational research from a more of a cerebral perspective as opposed to the past when people were looking at motivation, such as how do animals learn or how do you get to the cheese at the end of the maze, <laughs> yeah. stuff like that. Talk to us. What, what are some of the things we, if we just understood, it might eliminate some of our you know, myths or some of our problems with motivation? Well, Dr. Townsend, I'd say there's one really key factor that we have to realize, and this is part of the obstacle for most people, is we're not very good at measuring our own motivation. A lot of our motivational qualities are what we call tacit, below the basic level of consciousness. 
And that happens just like a habit forms, that you encounter a situation and you defer to a strategy that you're most comfortable with. So that's, that's the part of the issue is lack of awareness. So if we're trying to orchestrate an adaptive motivational situation, you have to bring to the forefront that awareness of the self and people need help with that. Yeah, how how do you do that? I mean, it's interesting because let's say let's say you're overweight, you've you've gained forty pounds more than you maybe used to have or whatever. And and tacitly, I know I'm overweight and I'm not driven in this area. But why don't I? Why am I not aware of it? Like, why am I not? Why is it not kind of a well, conscious thing? What you just said, though, I would say you are aware. You said you were not driven in that area. So that means that's within your field of consciousness. And weight loss, it's kind of a special category, and most people fail at weight loss because your ability to control and regulate your behavior is really depletable. It's Hmm. just like working out. If you're working out and you're doing 40 reps of a certain exercise, once you get to 41, you're you're pretty... uh, you're done. not really able to continue. Yeah. You're just, your resources are being evaporated and used, and it's the same thing with motivation. Hmm. So people will have great intentions, and they'll lay out a certain goal or path, as you described. But you do need to realize, and that's part of the self-awareness, you're going to encounter obstacles, and you're going to be depleted cognitively. So that's part of the weight loss problem. But what I wanted to really talk about is, gaining that self-awareness and what's behind the reason that people have such a difficult time. Mm. How, how, what do you find? Yeah. One of your videos. Oh, really? And in your video, you were talking about asking very introspective questions. Yeah. Why questions? So why do you want to lose weight? So people will say, well, I want to be healthy. Why do you want to be healthy? Well, I want to be healthy because I want to live longer. Why do you want to live longer? And we get down eventually, and it's uh, sometimes a very challenging process, to the beliefs that we have about ourselves. Mm. And those beliefs really guide motivated behavior. So if you have a negative view of yourself, you may tend to try to repress that view, and you use a lot of different strategies, and some of them are are the indulgences that you talked about, like weight promiscuity, uh, substance abuse, that kind of insulates the person from the reality. So the same thing happens with motivation for learning and performance, not, not quite to that extent, but people will actually handicap themselves unconsciously, again, most of the time, so they don't have to face the reality of what they're insulating, and that's that, that inner self hmm. is so important for motivation. And that's where awareness comes in, right? Because you got to dig deep down. Because we say one thing a lot of times, but we do a diff- another thing, and it's really what we're doing that's there's something driving the actual doing. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I, I talk about that a lot in the book because uh, what we tend to do is, and I call them uh, in my book, I refer to the readers as motivational detectives because you're really looking at all the clues around the person and around the situation, around the intervention. And behavior can be very misleading because the same behavior can represent many, many different motives. Hmm. So if you're in the business of trying to motivate others, the first thing you want to do, of course, is understand yourself. 
And that comes with that view of your beliefs. So what kind of beliefs are we talking about? Well, people have beliefs about just about anything in terms of how the world operates. But things like competency beliefs are very important. How capable do you think you are? That will influence the type of goals you set, how challenging those goals will be, whether or not you'll persevere, if you're open to using a variety of different strategies or you just default to the most comfortable. Uh, there are also beliefs about the degree of control that you have over your life, and that is paramount to a successful motivational intervention. If you want to, I wouldn't call it an intervention, but gaining that awareness. You think about a lot of people, and in my former, before being in academia, I was in human resources for about 20 years. I'd ask people when they would interview for a job, well, why did Tell me about your career. Yeah. Why did this happen? How did you get from job A to job B? And some people will say, well, you know, I was unemployed and this great job just came along. Other people will say, well, I had a certain goal for my next job. I had a goal in terms of what I'd be doing, where I'd be doing it, how I'd be doing it. And those people are a lot different from the people that say, well, this job just appeared because the former case you're really having an external focus on how you manage your life. Yeah. You're, you're driving case, it. It's more of an internal focus. We call it locus of control, but the control is the important aspect. And I'm not talking about controlling other people. It's not that at all. It's believing that you have the ability to orchestrate your life. If that control belief is diminished or repressed, you're really at the mercy of the world. You won't think that you have the ability to overcome obstacles. You might be called a fatalist. Yeah. You might be called to, yeah, just, um, yeah. <laughs> a lot of other things. But without that control, it's very hard to make progress from a motivational perspective. That's power. These are the so these are governing beliefs. We, we've got to take a break, but so far we've covered competency kind of beliefs that are deep down in us, control beliefs. Uh, when we come back, we'll continue this discussion with Dr. Bobby Hoffman. He's the um, author of the book Motivation for Learning and Performance, and you can find him at his website findingmo.com. Findingmo.com. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, do you feel like you know how to quit getting caught up in that crazy battle where we keep making commitments, we say we're going to do something, but we don't have the motivation to do it? Uh, it's a tough battle that I think each of us battles somewhere in our life. Somewhere in our lives, we're just ooh, we're just out of motivation. We're out of alignment. It's a it's a universal thing. And joining us today is Dr. Bobby Hoffman, who is a uh, an associate professor at the School of Teaching, Learning and Leadership at University of Central Florida, and he's walking us through how we can become more aware. It's our awareness and understanding our deeper beliefs that tends to drive why we do what we do. Dr. Hoffman, welcome back to the show. 
Thank you, Dr. Townsend. Keep teaching us. So, so we've got to get down to these deeper beliefs. You mentioned two of them. One yeah, was competency beliefs. The other was control beliefs. Is there one more? Well, there's actually a, a, probably about a dozen that would influence uh, the direction and intensity of our effort. But out of the interest of time, we'll just talk about two more, unless you want to no. proceed. But we also, when we approach a task, we're setting a goal. We're also making going through uh, psychological calisthenics, so to speak, and saying, well, how important is that goal to me? And when people fail to execute the strategy that they've laid out, people are usually pretty good at setting goals, but sometimes those goals may be unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Sometimes those goals may be subordinate to ultimate goals that they have. So what value people associate with reaching an outcome is really, really important. And that value is predicated upon, well, how important it is to me, how useful is it to me, what will I gain as a result of reaching that goal? So the value that we associate with the end state is really important. Huh. Yeah, because and that's all subconscious in a way, isn't it? I mean, you could just not even know. You, you could be kind of sabotaging your own goal just because deep down you don't value it. You don't. It's not valuable to you. Well, actually, that's a very important point, Dr. Townsend, because people do that all the time. In motivational science, we call that self-handicapping. And some self-handicapping strategies that are uh, very common are procrastination, waiting to the last minute to do something, setting uh, unrealistic goals or trying to do too much in the day. And people do that, and you say, well, why would that be self-handicapping? Because... The last thing that someone wants to admit to themselves is lack of capability. People would rather be called lazy or scatterbrained or unfocused than they would be called lacking in ability. So strategies like procrastination, where you wait to the last minute to do something, and if the goal is not achieved, you say to yourself, oh, my God, Matt, you know, if I had started that project earlier, it would have been successful. So true. (laughs) Strategy makes you feel better as an individual because you want to feel valued and and worthwhile. Right. So then you can default to that excuse. It's basically an excuse, and your self-worth remains intact. So true, huh? (laughs) But there's one more thing. Yeah, what's the other one? And and this is probably the... uh, at least statistically and based upon motivational theory, when all things are equal, meaning if you, have, if you and I have the same ability and we're about to approach a challenging task, when ability is equal, the individual that has the belief in their ability to reach the outcome and the confidence to orchestrate a strategy to reach that goal, almost always will outperform a person that doesn't have that confidence or self-efficacy. Uh, yeah. If we call. So that, that factor accounts for more variability in performance than any other, the belief that you can execute a course of action to reach your goal. Yeah, cause it, yeah interesting. So, that's, if, so subconsciously, people could be thinking, just think about their goals that they're struggling with, 
And there's probably a deep belief, if we just went with the four that you presented, even though there's more, it, it could be that you don't think you're competent. It could be that you don't have control to do it. It's not of your value. Or you don't believe you can do it. Right. Wow. So if you, if you if we just look at those four, and, and we put those out on the table, if you're having those uh, negative self-views, even though you might not conceptualize it that way, but really that's what's happening behind the scenes you're you're lacking in the motivation or yeah you're not going to put forth the effort and that's where the breakdown comes if we don't invest effort you're not going to reach their goal your goal uh and this kind of applies universally to life besides in the classroom the workplace on the athletic field it all boils down to effort and i i know you're uh you're a Ph.D., I believe? Yeah, yeah. And I'm a Ph.D., but you know what? It's got nothing to do with how smart you are. No. <laughs> That's what they keep telling me. Can you persevere? Do you have the strategies to overcome the obstacles that you should expect are going to happen? Yeah. Nothing is perfect in life, and you know that's another factor that I was reinforced when I interviewed the people that I interviewed for the book universally they expected to encounter obstacles and were psychologically prepared for that. And this relates back to that locus of control I talked about earlier. If you have a strong belief in your ability to control outcomes, and if you are logical and realistic, you'll know that sometimes you're going to hit a, a speed bump or a pothole whether that be uh, knowing that your flight is delayed and you're going to sit in the airport for two hours, if you expect that to happen, you're much better prepared to right. deal with it. Yeah. Or if you get laid off from your job or your a relationship goes sour, we know realistically that things will happen. And the people that, that I call motivational leaders, both in the book and outside of the book, expect challenges, expect obstacles, and think about the strategies that they will use to overcome those obstacles. Hmm. I mean, it's not, it's so interesting to me because motivation really is then, it's really a thinking process, isn't it? Because we have to be aware of all of these beliefs and thoughts that generate certain feelings and emotions, and it's the feelings and emotions, it seems like, that are the motivation. Well, at least empirically, we're going to make distinctions between cognition, emotion, and motivation. Right. But from a practical perspective, it all kind of, it's like a ingredients in a soup. Yeah. You, can, you can pick them out, but, but it's really the soup that we're, we're concerned with. So Because so, everything you've mentioned is about thinking, really. <laughs> well, you ha- as we stated, you have to be conscious and aware, but you also, and we'll go back to your uh, weight loss, uh, yeah. example that you use. You have to have a compelling reason to change. Hmm. You know, a lot of, a lot of people that, that uh, decide they're going to invest energy in a certain project, they might not be behind it 100%. And that, that happens at work Yeah, quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. So, so how well, do we... That's kind of the second uh, part of the, the, the change process. If, in fact, you're committed to changing your motivation, your motivational beliefs, there has to be some a really good reason, and that happens a lot of times when 
some of these beliefs that become so ingrained in us. For example, if, if you have a, a low competency beliefs, mm-hmm. that's going to determine the degree, the degree of challenge you're going to accept when you pick a task. You're probably not somebody that's going to be sitting down and doing a 1,000-piece uh, puzzle or reading <laughs> War and Peace. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a cumulative process. And some people don't really, even if you are aware, it's like, okay, I'm overweight, but so what? (laughs) Yeah, get off my back. (laughs) But that's just somebody that doesn't see that as a challenge they want to deal with yet, a compelling reason yet. Yeah. So you got to have awareness, and then you've got to have a a compelling reason to do something, a compelling reason to change. Well, that's step two. Yeah. There's a step three, though. What's that? you got to do it. (laughs) Uh, this is not easy. What is it? <laughs> you need some evidence. Oh. You need evidence to present to the person, okay? Let, let's assume it's in their consciousness and self-awareness. So if they have, um, by example, let's say you're the type of person that when you uh, recognize conflict, you like to not deal with it. <laughs> yeah, you're avoidant or whatever, right? <laughs> There's a lot of people like that out there that they don't want to... Uh, they want to go with the flow and not make any waves. So if, in fact, this strategy is maladaptive, not working for them, and you, as what I would call, again, a motivational detective, you're trying to help that person change because they recognize the need, you need what's called refutational evidence, evidence that's indisputable. So, for example, in your weight loss situation, if this person says, you know, I'm committed to losing weight, I want to say, well, let's look at the data. (laughs) You had a hamburger for breakfast. (laughs) Yes, there is personal data, and one of the ways to enhance the effectiveness of strategies is just writing stuff down, just keeping it long. You go back and look at that uh, two weeks later, and you say, holy cow, look at this. (laughs) I consume 4,000 calories a day. All right, so there's some good refutational evidence why you're not going to reach your goal. <laughs> that's great, though. I mean, that's a that's a basic thing, right? Well, it, it's pretty basic. Unless you're trying to obstruct, yeah. Yeah, it's not really part of the stream of consciousness. But let's say I'm trying to convince you you should uh, have me back on the show next week. Okay, I'm going to give you some evidence that says when I'm on the show, this is what happens. Ah, or, ratings go, yeah. I'm not on the show, this is what happens. So in all these situations, you really need good, strong, objective evidence. And a lot of times that's really hard to convince the person because they might just reject it or they'll reject the person providing the evidence. Yeah. Or they'll kind of say, yeah, I know that, but you get a lot of that. So to get the lasting change, it really is a challenge. But those first three steps are essential. Well, that's huge, which is why sometimes, I guess, when we go to the doctor's office and they, they give us this refutation, this refutational evidence that, yeah, your, your arteries are blocked by this percent. Oh, okay. So I do need to watch my cholesterol. So then all of a sudden it's there. It's right in my well, face. I hate to uh, reduce it to that level of uh, seriousness, but... The way the world operates, when do you uh, start worrying about your health? When yeah. do a lot of people start worrying about their health? When the ambulance when pulls up. they have a heart up. attack. Yeah. It's <laughs> sad. When they get that blood test back or when they uh, go for whatever exam it is and there's your evidence. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're speaking with Dr. Bobby Hoffman. Um, as we wrap this up, Doc, we got about a minute. Tell me, what's, what's, if we have to begin somewhere, what could, they, what could somebody do today 
to help create some some movement, quick movement maybe, immediate movement, or at least understanding toward more motivation? Well, I think you need to be open. There's a degree of critical thinking involved in enhancing your own motivation. You you really need that compelling reason. And if it was a quick fix, having somebody like you or a coach or anyone that can help that person see the obstacles to their motivation. Everybody has a coach. Uh, yeah. From the top people in the world, there's always somebody to give you that feedback before you can expect to generate your own reliable, well-calibrated internal feedback and say, hey, buddy, what are you doing here? Think about this. That's it's powerful. Good to have somebody else to support you. So that's scaffolding from other important people in your life, whether it be a teacher, a spouse, a parent, whomever. Even it's that, if that's spiritual scaffolding, mm. that goes a really long way to creating motivational change. Powerful. Powerful stuff. Again, Dr. Bobby Hoffman, thank you. Thank you so much for your insight. And uh, folks, just just be open. Be open to, to look at yourself a little bit deeper. Be open to go get that coach that uh, Bobby was just talking about. Again, go check out the book, Motivation for Learning and Performance. Um, and uh, tons of tons of opportunities just inside ourselves to uncover a lot of good, folks. We'll take a break, and uh, you know we're going to come back to a quick review of the movie Ant Man, Ant Man, Ant Man. Fun stuff coming up next. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. folks from the uh from ant-man the new movie that's coming out this weekend ant-man you know all we've heard from terry is ant-man 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 so we wanted to go to the expert find out uh, how this movie's uh turned out rod gustafson joins us from parentpreviews.com he's a film critic specializing in reviewing movies and media from a parent's perspective rod what do you think of ant-man my friend it's great is it great this is well, first of all, okay, Terry, I, er, I'm sorry, no. Terry, Matt, yeah. uh, Terry, you're... Producer, Terry's the guy that loves Ant-Man, and he's probably been talking in your ear about Ant-Man. <laughs> no, actually, he hasn't. Well, he loves uh, you. He'll, he will be happy. Good. Because I don't know, Matt, if you're much of a comic book I'm guy. not. I, I'm not. Yeah, me neither. Me neither. <laughs> and so last year when Guardians of the Galaxy came out, I thought, well, who are these guys? I wonder what this is going to be like. And... And it was such a, it was a huge hit. People were amazed because most of us greenies, we haven't got a clue, you know, who Guardians of the Galaxy were unless you're a hardcore comic person. Right. But it really drew in a lot of extra people that they weren't expecting. I think Ant-Man is going to do the exact Mm. same thing because, frankly, I had never heard of Ant-Man. And on top of that, the trailer looks really dumb. (laughs) (laughs) I watched it, I thought, yeah, what's this going to be like? But no, it's very, very good. What what's the, I guess the premise of it is there's a guy that can wear a suit, and it makes him the size of an ant. Is that the idea? Yeah. And that's Paul Rudd is playing Ant Man. Michael Douglas is in this play as well, or this movie as well. He is. 
is. Yes, yes, he is. And so, yeah, so this is a lot like, so if this was, he is on the same level as Iron Man is, as Tony Stark. Hmm. And um, because he's an ordinary guy who is made extraordinary by wearing a suit. Whereas some of the Marvel superheroes, you know, like Thor, is he is from another yeah. planet, and he's special just because he's Thor. But these guys have to wear suits. <laughs> so <laughs> it seems to be those two different kinds of superheroes. So, yes, he discovers he puts on this suit, and, uh, and he can shrink to a very tiny size. And how he comes across the suit is that he actually is, his name is Scott, and he actually hasn't been making some good life choices. He was a bit of a Robin Hood thief, and uh, and now he needs to try and pay his alimony because he lost his job, and he decides to break into this house. And the house he breaks into is this scientist who has developed this incredible suit many years earlier and uh so that once hmm. he breaks in the scientist is so impressed with his ability to break into his his uh safe that he decides to give him the opportunity to wear the suit and become involved in this big master plan because of course as always happens in marvel comics the invention always gets hijacked by the bad guy right and that's what happened with this scientist his invention many years earlier during the cold war he lost control of his company and now the bad guys want to use a shrinking suit so that's great so, and, and, and on it begins and and then so you gave this an overall rating of what of a B plus, a B plus. You know, the one thing that kept us from it, from going into the A grades for families, we're pretty picky about our hero. And because our hero has a checkered kind of a little bit of a criminal past, he's not a real bad criminal, but at the same time, uh, you know, we get movies that promote the idea that, our, you know, only the bad guys can become good guys. Right. This guy, you know, I'm, I, it was kind of on the line, but that's what keeps it from getting an A grade. Yeah. Otherwise, though, the nice thing about this film, I mean, it's got the comic book violence to it, and there is some profanity, but for a PG-13 movie, far less than hmm. what we would usually hear. That's so we've great. Got about, yeah, we've got about five what we call scatological terms, and uh, and we've got a, few, a handful of other words. So there is still some stuff there for parents to be aware of, but uh, compared to what we hear in many of the other uh, action films, this one's far lighter. That's great. Another movie, Mr. Holmes, is coming out. What what was your take on that? Is this like a? Is this just another kind of version of Sherlock Holmes? Well, it is another version of Sherlock Holmes. You know what's interesting about Sherlock Holmes is because it's in the public domain, nobody, unlike Ant-Man and Marvel Comics, which is heavily licensed to one studio only, Disney, Sherlock Holmes, he's up for grabs. Anybody can do whatever they want with Sherlock Holmes. Huh. And, um, and so this one is an interesting twist. Ian McKellen, who, of course, is that wonderful actor yeah. that many people have met on The Lord of the Rings, but he's got a huge acting career. He plays Holmes as an aging man who is dealing with the very early stages of dementia, mm. which is interesting. And so he is feeling very frustrated and upset because he can't quite remember what happened in his last case, which was now 30 years earlier, and he's trying to put the pieces together because he feels like he failed at his last case. And so as we go through him trying to put the pieces together, we discover what this last case was. This is an amazingly made movie. And now this one's got an A minus the parents. Your kids will probably be bored to tears. <laughs> but for adults who like Sherlock Holmes, 
I think that they would really find this interesting. The other thing I appreciated about this movie, it has some interesting messages to say about aging, Hmm. uh, about the loneliness of aging, about how intergenerational contact can help us in so many ways. As a young child, Mr. Holmes' housekeeper's child, and he has a great relationship with this little boy. And it's the two of them working together and how they benefit each other's lives. It's a, it's a very heartwarming story in that regard. There is a scene where a character um, it, it does commit suicide, but we do not see any detail of that. This character standing on train tracks, and we see a train coming, and then, the, and then oh. it cuts. So, um, so that is probably the heaviest content in it. Otherwise, I did not catch a single word of profanity. There is no sexual content whatsoever. Hmm. So uh, it's it's very clean sailing as far as that goes. And the acting, performances, cinematography, I am hoping we'll see this one up at the Oscars. Oh, that's great! It's uh, so it's a uh, it's really more for for the for adults. Kids may be a little bored. Not I... enough. Mystery. So, yeah, yeah. A lot of young people are going to say, well, I need to watch this old man dealing with dementia. <laughs> but, but I, you know, if they have the patience to watch it, and certainly parents, invite your teens, maybe, you know, if teens are interested in mysteries and detective genre, they might enjoy it. And if they're interested in seeing what Ian McKellen can do outside of Lord of the Rings they might enjoy it. Oh, I love it. You know what, Rod? You guys do such great work there. Um, two two movies I'm, I'm probably going to have to see this weekend after I work my yeah, garden. These, yeah, yeah. <laughs> after you work in the garden. It's funny you should say that. That's exactly where my wife is at the moment. Is it right so, now? Yeah. She's, she's out there working work in, in the garden. Well, Rod, yeah, we appreciate yeah. you. And we can't, uh, you know, we can't recommend more. Parents, go be educated before you send your kids or go to the movies with your kids. Go to parentpreviews.com. It's a wonderful resource for all of us to just make sure we are on top of what uh, what our children are seeing. Uh, we're going to take a break. And by the way, Ant-Man now, Terry can relax because now it's official. It's, it's coming out this weekend and we've given it a positive review. So relax, Terry. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back, uh, set it all up again. Do it again next hour. More tools, more ideas to help you find the good in the world. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy Friday to you. It's Friday. It's Friday. You did it. You made it another week, friends. And uh, happy Peach Ice Cream Day, which is one of the greatest days ever. Uh, really, you cannot beat a, a good peach shake. Chocolate chip ice cream is good. Yeah, you cannot beat a peach Rocky shake. Road, it's got a little... No. You know, marshmallows? It's it. it's, no? it's peach ice cream day. Yeah. We're not doing Rocky. We're not doing... We could, though. We don't have to We could. You're free peach. to choose. You're yeah. free to choose those other, you know, mm-hmm. mundane... They're not mundane. Boring flavors. But... French silk. Mm. Now, have you been to Atlanta? No. Peach... Ah. Oh. <laughs> Just a peach shake. Or peach cobbler. Ah! Oh. With ice cream on it. Settle down. 
Got another hour Today's to go. Today's peach ice cream day. You remember the creamery and see if they have something for you over there. Oh, maybe they do. That's they a could. Great idea. They make their own ice cream. What I like to do campus. is I like to go on walks because I, you know, you can lose weight walking, and then I usually get a really big shake while right. I'm walking to counteract everything yeah. you just did. Well, it's hot, right? And I don't want to. So instead of water, right? Ice cream, ice cream, because it Makes keeps me cool. Total sense. It's and you know what? A lot of days I wouldn't walk, but then when I know that I've got a shake, I could get. I'll walk. It motivates me. So we just talked about motivating. And motivation last hour. So that's what I do. It's in in the winter when I don't want to shake. Yes. You don't walk. No. Twinkies. Oh, Twinkies. Donuts. All right. So it's still a net zero for you. What do you, what do you mean? You're expending possibly exactly the same amount you're eating at the same time. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm eating a lot more <laughs> calories than I'm expending. Okay. Yeah. But my, I don't walk to burn calories. So it's not one Twinkie. It's like four. Well. Or a box. It depends. Okay. I don't want to, I mean, don't make me sound like a pig, but- Do you share with others? No, I'm walking. No one's walking with me, and I don't invite anybody because I don't want to get I do notice Twinkies. that. You'll just disappear. I need to speak with you. I need to, to confirm. I need to consult. Yeah. And you're gone. Well, I'm actually listening to yeah, stuff. No. But when I disappear, that usually means I don't want to talk to anybody. Well, the lights are out, and I check under the desk. Always you're not check. taking a nap. No, but so. now I'm taking the naps now at 2.30. Two to five. Two to five. That's the that's new what the Spanish according. mayor says. Uh-huh. So I'm taking his <laughs> advice. I'm just trying to do what this show asks us to do. Right. Today I'm asking you to celebrate Peach Ice Cream Day. Peach Ice Cream Day. And follow the the great Spanish, uh, mayor. Spanish mayor and start taking a siesta from about two to five. Two to five in the afternoon. You're not obligated. No. It's a suggestion. It's a suggestion. For a better city. Yeah. A calmer, happier city. Right. And keep all the kids inside. Yes. Don't want to disrupt the sleepers. Yeah, don't be making noise. Don't have your kids out there making racket so the rest of them can't So apparently if you sleep. have kids, there's no sleeping between 2 and 5. Yeah. Because you have the kids. No, you drug your kids, I guess, to okay. sleep. All right. I don't know. There's a solution to every problem. We that's, why, that's why we have technology. <laughs> just hand the iPad to the kids. Uh, great. Uh, that's what we bring you here on the show. Stuff you don't get anywhere else. We'll bring it here. But coming up this hour, we're going to be talking with um, a guest that we've we've kind of wanted to get on here forever. Ben Carey is going to be joining us. He's going to be talking about how we learn, when we learn, where, and why we learn. Basically, the power of learning and your thoughts. And we're going to get in behind it, figure out what's really going on there. But before we do that, let's go to the headlines with Terry South. Four U.S. Marines were killed and three others injured Thursday when a gunman attacked two U.S. military recruiting centers in Chattanooga, Tennessee. The FBI has identified the gunman as Muhammad Yusuf Abdulaziz, a 24-year-old native of Hickson, Tennessee. The U.S. attorney in Tennessee says the incident is being investigated as an act of domestic terrorism by federal, state, and local officials. An Army recruiting center was hit first with more than a dozen shots. The same suspect is believed to have then traveled to a nearby Navy recruiting center and shot a police officer in the ankle. The attacker was armed with multiple weapons and killed after police responded. FBI agent Ed Reinhold, on, he is leading the investigation. We're going to do an intense look at him to see if what his connections are. Uh, we'll look at his friends, families, associates, anybody who uh, is associated with him to, to determine the cause or the reason why he conducted this attack. The other big story on Thursday, James Holmes was found guilty of first-degree murder Thursday in the death of 12 people at a Colorado theater three years ago. He now faces the possibility of being sentenced to death. In Colorado, there is a moratorium on capital punishment. Hmm. 
So what do you do there? The governor would have to lift his moratorium on the capital punishment if he was to be put to death. So it's interesting. So you're, they'll, they'll you're, make the decision, but it may not actually happen because of the uh, the current political situations right. there. The nine woman, three man jury decided Holmes was not insane in the shooting of the shooting at the movie theater. Uh, back in 2012, he was found guilty of all 24 counts of first-degree murder, 140 counts of attempted murder, and similar counts, and one explosives count. Hmm. So they'll move into the sentencing stage on that'll start on Wednesday. That's that a big proceeds. deal. Everyone expects Hillary Clinton to be the Democratic nominee for uh, president in 2016, but a new poll suggests that it's not because Americans view Clinton all that favorably. It's not Clinton's capabil- uh, capability that Americans are calling into question. It's her character. A new Associated Press poll found that just three out of 10 Americans say the word honest best describes Clinton, <laughs> and just four in 10 saw her as compassionate. Democratic voters instead describe Clinton to the Associated Press as a little stiff, run-of-the-mill, and not all that sincere of genuine, hmm. which I'm not sure what sincere of genuine means. And what's interesting is, will it matter? Do any? We assume that these things would matter. Yeah, but apparently, apparently it may not matter who you. If, one uh, one person who responded to the uh, the poll said, "I used to like her, but I don't trust her." Interesting. Ever since she announced her candidacy for the presidency, I just haven't liked the way she handles things. She doesn't answer questions directly. Hmm. So we'll see how that develops. Interesting. Donald Trump's foray into the political sphere was short-lived, at least at the Huffington Post. The website has decided to pull all of its coverage of Trump from its politics page and relocate it to a new home, the entertainment section. In a note explaining their decision, Huffington Post editorial director Danny Shea and Washington Bureau Chief Ryan Grimm called Trump's campaign a sideshow and refused to treat it as anything more than a headline-grabbing circus. We don't take the bait. If you are interested in what Donald has to say, you'll find it next to stories on the Kardashians and the <laughs> Bachelorette. There you go. <laughs> Good stuff. And a final story. This yeah. is a word of warning. Roboticists. Pardon? Yes. Roboticists at the Rensselaer Polytechnical Institute in New York. Hmm? Come again. Have built a trio of robots that were put through the classic wise men puzzle test of self-awareness. And one of them passed. <gasps> so you give them this test. It takes them through some, some kind of thought exercises. Yes. And a robot, if they can be self-aware, they're going to identify themselves in this test. Oh, my word. So it's kind of a, a higher level of thinking. It's happening. Something humans can do, but a robot can't. But a robot did it yesterday, or did it earlier this week. Ah. Uh. So what it says is logic puzzles requiring an element of self-awareness like this are essential in building robots that can understand their role in society. By passing many tests of this type, it's, it's hoped that robots will be able to build up a group of human-like abilities that become useful when combined. They seem to be forgetting the unintended consequences of eventual world domination of robots. The Terminator. So. Interesting. So what we thought couldn't happen is. There's been some incidents. Now it was isolated. There's three robots. One of them passed the test. All three robots are from the same coding language. They're, they're all programmed the they're same. From the same genetic line. Yeah. They built the robots the same way. One of them passed. So kind of the idea is if they all have the same software, didn't all of them pass? So was there three robots or you just know one robot? I bet one of them just put A, 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 and then he passed. Just like oh, like the SAT, you just uh-huh. fill in the bubbles in yeah. a, in a just pattern. Cheated. He just cheated. He had a 
a pattern of cheating. By the way, if the robot, the only robots I'm even aware of are like Roombas. Okay. So what kind of robots are these? They just said robots. Roboticists were saying this. So Who? Roboticists. I'm not sure what that is. That's what the article said. So I left it in because yeah. it sounded, you know, well, questionable. It made you sound super smart. Yeah. Well. well, that's scary. Okay. Well, they're progressing, folks. Yeah. You better keep learning, which is why we've got our next guest. Ben Carey is going to join us. Uh, ben is an award-winning science reporter who has some insights for us regarding the topic of learning, how we learn. Maybe we're going to have to blow up some of those old myths about learning because uh, it, maybe it's not just about self-discipline. Maybe it's not. Maybe you can learn if you're a little distracted or a little restless. Interesting stuff coming up, folks. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Ben Carey on the topic of the power of thought up next on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, from an early age, it's been drilled into our heads, restlessness, distractions, ignorance. They're all the enemies of success. We're told that learning is all about self-discipline, that we must confine ourselves to a designated study area, turn off that music, maintain a strict ritual, right? If you want to ace the test, you got to be focused, son. Now... The reality is some of those little uh, lessons or old wives' tales we used to tell our kids, they may not quite be as accurate as we thought when it comes to our learning. So to, to help us through this today, we are joined by Benedict Carey, an award-winning science reporter who has some insights for us regarding this topic. Mr. Carey, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks, Matt, very much. It's nice to be here. Great to have you here. What, uh, what is, I mean, you wrote the book on it, for heaven's sakes, How We Learn the Surprising Truth About When, Where, and Why It Happens. What are some of the surprising truths that we don't know? There are a whole lot of them. Uh, the science of learning and memory is about 100 years old, and uh, the weird thing is that th- those scientists haven't really talked to teachers much. So <laughs> a lot of this stuff is just not known by teachers or parents. Um, some of it's known instinctually, <clears throat> but I'll give you a few examples. Yeah. <clears throat> one very simple one is that by breaking up study time, and this is advice your mom or your dad may have given you, you know, yeah. honey, don't do it all tonight. Split it up, do an hour tonight and an hour tomorrow. It's a very simple thing. turns out to be uh, a very valuable um, technique when you're trying to memorize information. In fact, it can double the amount that you recall a week later on a test. So just think about it for a second. You're not spending any more time. You know, you're doing the same amount of time. Uh-huh. You're not working any harder. So you've just split your time. It's all you've done. Um, so it's not about time, and, and it's not about difficulty. Effect. Yeah. yeah. So that, that is one example, Matt. There are a whole lot of other ones. Um, now, is that, is that this, this is funny. How long ago was that? Do you know when that research was created? About 100 years ago, <laughs> uh, the, the founder of the field yeah. um, uh, is the one who found that, didn't know what to make of it, and took, took some time before uh, you know, later researchers figured out kind of what's happening. Um, but once you learn what's happening, it's <clears throat> kind of obvious on the one hand and not so obvious on the other. You really begin to see there's a whole bunch of things that essentially we've, taught, we've been taught are not good for learning. Mm-hmm like distractions and breaking up study time and mixing up practice, 
practicing different things at once uh, that turn out to be very helpful. So, so that's the uh, that's the idea, um, and a lot of these things are being incorporated, sort of, or trying to, their attempts to incorporate them into schools. But that's going to take a long time, and uh, it's a lot better just to learn them yourself. Yeah, I mean, Benedict, it's been a hundred years. Like right. this shouldn't <laughs> this should be out by now, right? Isn't that amazing? This is incredible. Like, give us some more. Like you were saying, distractions. Because as a parent, you know, my mom did everything she could to eliminate all distractions so I could sit in a room and listen to the, you know, the the humming of the light. <laughs> well, so there's a few things in there, Matt. Um, you know, we're told to find one study place and to eliminate all distractions. Both things are wrong. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, the uh, changing up your study location, just the location, helps you. Uh, it multiplies the cues you have to, you know, retain, I'm sorry, store and later retain information. So, so kids who are restless, who are moving around, should be encouraged as long as they are, in fact, studying and not just, you know, on video games. Um, because well, that gives us more cues, you said. The cues meaning I have, I mean, I might have the smell of being under a peach tree or I might have the light or I mean, all these different things would re- help me retain the learning. Exactly. That, 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 that changing up locations for sure so you move your books around you know you're in the kitchen you're in your your room maybe you take it out on the porch maybe you take it out to the local cafe all those things um work to kind of multiply and enrich the information you're storing hmm. making it more available later on that's the idea interesting uh the other thing you mentioned was distractions you know this is a big deal now parents are worried about it because of the everyone's got a phone and we're all looking at it all the time um distractions of course can be terrible if you're if you need continuous attention, like you're sitting in a lecture or you're driving or something, but if you're trying to problem solve, <clears throat> and that goes for both you know math problems and and writing type of problems, you know you can't figure out how to get yourself out of a sentence or into a next paragraph. Um, a if you run out of ideas, then distraction is an effective way to increase the likelihood you can solve it. Hmm. And part of the reason is. <clears throat> Well, by that, by distraction, I mean any number of things. You could jump on Instagram, you could call a friend, you could go for a walk. Uh, it's a matter of sort of loosening some of your fixed ideas that are blocking you. Um, and so distractions can be bad, of course, we all know that, um, but can be very effective learning <clears throat> uh, tools in certain contexts, like when you're stuck. That is so interesting. I mean, again, it's... Because almost you, you feel like you're doing it wrong. You, you may have felt like you were doing it wrong because I like a little music on. I like to to be able to get up and maybe walk around while I'm thinking about something, not just sitting there and doing it. And it might make sense that maybe naturally my body was figuring this out anyway. Right. I mean, that is the big picture, man, is that, uh, you know, humans have been around for some million years or so. And you know, school, as we know it, studying and homework and all that, has only been around for a few thousand. So maybe it's, it, that's the big picture, is the brain really learned to learn, human brain, in a whole variety of ways. And so if you feel restless, yes. I mean, that's part of the way the brain learned <clears throat> for all those years sort of foraging for food and shelter. Um, and uh, if you want to listen to music and change it up and all those things, it's, in a way it's like your body telling you this is, this is the way to do it. It's only it's it's the biases about we think the best way to learn. Those biases come from um, you know school based learning. Yeah, 
Yeah, like this. Yeah, isn't that interesting? And we really are going to spend our entire life learning, and only a little bit of it in school. Yeah, and I think that uh, adults again instinctively get this, and so you know, for example, if you have to learn something. Um, you sort of <clears throat> become familiar with this yourself enough, I suspect, that you know, you know you have to take breaks, you have to kind of walk around, change it up. You are in charge of your own time, and you're able to do that now a little more right. than when you're a kid, of course, where you know, everyone's making you sit still. <laughs> it's, so, <laughs> it's so true. What, uh, what, uh, what are there any other surprising just issues or things you've discovered that you thought, wow, I never can, I can't even believe it? Yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's full of that, the science of learning and memory, it's called cognitive psychology, is, is full of this stuff. Um, one of them is to do with sleep. You know, we all kind of suspect that sleep is uh, connected to learning or it affects learning. That's true. It's considered a learning consolidator, kind of a filter, something that helps you <clears throat> decide what's important because so much stuff is coming into your head during the daytime and you're awake, right? So, right. So sleep access this kind of filter. What's cool about it is that sleep has a number of stages, and those stages appear to be specialized to consolidate specific types of information. Hmm. So when you're preparing for tests, for example, <clears throat> you can manage your sleep if you're going to you know, stay up late or get up early. You can manage it depending on what you've got to prepare for. So you do one thing, for example, if you're studying for a French test or you know, something that's going to demand lots of memorization, and you would do another thing um, if you were preparing for a math test or, for example, recital, you know, something that requires motor memory. Uh-huh. So who knew, right, I mean, that you could actually use sleep science, learning sleep science, to better prepare for, you know, to yeah. sort of suit your preparation for what you're, you're Yeah, doing. and pick your, pick your yeah. time. Yeah, it might be better to stay up a little bit later or get up a little bit earlier. I mean, isn't that fascinating? No, it's 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 just great stuff, and it's um, and it's not hard. And no. I think personally, my shtick on this is it should be taught directly to kids at a, you know at a pretty young age. Yeah, it's uh, it's not uh, it's not rocket science. <laughs> it is brain science, however. It is. And, it is. Uh, and it's the useful kind. That's right. So. And you don't have to be a brain surgeon to read it. And yet I think it's powerful. Teach it to your kids. Let's take a break. We're talking with Ben Carey, again, the author of the book, How We Learn the Surprising Truth About When, Where, and Why It Happens by Benedict Carey. We'll take a break and come right back. I really want to find out if this new technology kind of world we're living in, you know, if that, if that plays better into this type of learning or or what. We'll find out. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You'll be listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are on the phone with Ben Carey, who is the author of the book, a New York Times, uh, uh, actually he wrote for the New York Times since 2004, 
And um, he's rewritten the book, How We Learn the Surprising Truth About When, Where, and Why It Happens, which was published in September of 2014. He lives in New York City. Benedict Carey, thanks for being here, my friend. Uh, thanks very much for having me. This is a really, I think, important book. Uh, we, we A lot of times we we believe our the learning is is our, you know, our education system's process. It's our teacher's job. And yet... Um, Really, it's it's a personal thing. Humans need to learn how they learn and get the truth about it, and that's why parents could read a book like this and just take it right to their family, right? Absolutely. I mean, parents are really the ideal audience for this. Um, and I think you, and you hit on something there. I mean, we we're never taught how to learn. No one no one ever yeah. teaches us that. We just we're just given lectures about what's right and wrong in terms of learning, you know, get yourself to your room and open the books and, you know, put your head in kind of thing. Um, and that's not helpful. And, you know, in the end, uh, and I think, I think a lot of us, I'll speak for myself, longed for some mentoring mm-hmm. um, to be a student and never got it. You just never get it. You're kind of on your own in a way. And, and so I think for anyone, parents and kids for sure, um, it's nice to know what the science says about learning. I mean, you, at least you can, can be your own mentor a little bit. Um, and so that's the idea with this book. Do you, do you sense any difference with this new age where, you know, it's so technologically driven, we are so app-driven, and, you know, maybe the attention span of our, our each of us is shrinking? Um, what, what do you sense is going to happen with how we learn in the next, you know, couple generations? I tend to think, Matt, that the uh, the innovations and the technology are uh, can be indeed exploited to to sort of deepen learning. Mm. That is, that they can be extremely helpful. Now, we talked about this a little bit in the first break. Um, if you're constantly distracted when you need to pay attention, it's not, yeah. not going to work for you. Okay, um, but here's what I think uh, about the sort of technolo- technological change. You know, you have on your phone now all sorts of capabilities, video, audio, little short movies, things that your friends send, pictures, photos, podcasts, books, all that stuff is available in your pocket. Um, and really, we all learn in a whole variety of ways, and I think that the technology is allowing people to do just that. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example from the newspaper. I mean, we're, I work in the New York Times. I'm a science writer there. And of course, traditionally, that's been old media. We, you know, we write stories. We, we print them uh, on the page. Of course, we've had to sort of change everything and try to innovate uh, at the paper. And one of the things that's being done and effectively is to present stories uh, not as simply printed text or even printed text with photos, but text, photos, podcasts, slideshows, mm. videos. Yeah. So indeed, we have about half a dozen different ways for people to receive the information, as we discussed before, changing the way that you approach a particular kind of information. Mixing it up is good. It's helpful. It multiplies the ways you sort of uh, are absorbing the information. <clears throat> That's so, so true. It's good to see the podcast, etc. And, and I guess that makes it so, then if you incorporate all the other lessons about breaking up the time, how we how we bring it into us, and um, and kind of mixed, it's almost a mixed methods approach. Man, you actually might be able to leverage it even even deeper. Yeah, I think you'll be able to leverage this. Uh, look, 
we're all somewhat highly distractible. That was the true. That was the case well before uh, all of the social media sort of swept the you know mm-hmm. swept the world. Um, we distracted ourselves continuously. I'll speak for myself. I certainly did so uh, well before the iPhones and so on. Um, <clears throat> but you're right. I think that uh, if and this will happen, um, you know, smart smarter people than I will put together the science which is independent of technology, by the way. All the scientific things that I write about in that book is things you can apply yourself. You don't need any fancy computer stuff. But they'll put together that with computer applications, right, that, right. that basically are built on the, you know, the foundation of the science itself. So, uh, and those, some of those I'm, I, you know, will be excellent. A lot of them will be bad. I'm not going to... Right. You know, how it's it is, not, everything's not but, perfect, but, yeah. Well, not perfect, and a lot of the stuff will be junk, but but there'll be some good stuff that will come out of that. And, um, you know, uh, yeah, you have a whole bunch of different ways you can learn through your phone, and I think that to the extent that that's built on, you know, the science of learning, the cognitive psychology of learning, can be very effective. What do you suggest as we as we kind of um, think about this, like sitting down with our kids? How do you how do you envision that happening? Do you, like, what do you do to to do that? Do you just sit down and start teaching them ideas? Or, or how do you suggest we as parents teach our children to learn? You, it depends on the kid's age. But the, you know, this is, the book I've written is not long. I sort of read it pretty quickly. Uh, it'll give you a handful of techniques, about 10 of them, um, and, and a big idea about how they work together and so on, um, and how they're applicable. Now, Depending on the kid's age, you can um, at some point you can teach them directly. But before then, I would say that's about middle school. Before then, well, you can do all sorts of stuff that makes studying a lot more fun and more effective. And I'll give you one example. Yeah. Um, well, we've already talked about switching locations. I mean, if you've had, you know, I've kids, uh, yeah, they're grown now, but um, you know, they hated doing homework and they hated sitting still. They're very restless. So you can use that in your favor. So you can move them around. In other words, you don't have to be yelling at them to get back in the room. And <laughs> get in your room! Around as that's long as right. they continue to work, all right, that's already more fun than yeah. <laughs> standard homework. Um, and it's a better way to deepen the actual memory. Now, you can also have kids, depending on their age, play teacher, hmm. which is a great way. It's a, the actual technique is called self-testing or self-examination because... You're having to draw on your knowledge and teach it to someone else. Now, kids of a certain age love playing teacher. Um, I mean, you can't, you know, that that they love doing that, and that's a way of <clears throat> really deepening yeah. the study experience. And it's, you know, it's a ton more fun than, again, just having to strap into a chair. So, uh, that's those are two examples. You bet. Uh, the point is, you can you can basically adapt these techniques to. Uh, you know, whatever your kid's doing. <laughs> and I've seen like it. I mean, a great thing today is let your kids, as they get older and turn into teens, let them teach you about technology. <laughs> yes. Because yes, yes. that's where a lot of us are behind anyway. And, and, man, what a powerful way. When you put them in that role as teacher, then you can have them even start teaching the other kids just, you know, math or whatever stuff they've got to learn. we got about 30 seconds, Ben. And so just teach us – I mean, what's the one thing that we all ought to remember when it comes to our learning, our our growth? Um, what's the key? There's a couple of 
keys. Take, take the pressure off yourself to try to live up to some ideal of how to study, because there is none. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and the other one is, <clears throat> you know, no one ever got learning a 101 in the class, but it's there, it exists, and it allows you, most of all, it's the best part, to be tactical about your study. You don't have to pray that you're doing it right or wonder if you're doing it right. You can build techniques so you know you're doing it right. Mm-hmm. So those are the two big things. That's great. Relax. And relax. relax and, 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 and have tactics. Yeah, learn and, and, and learn how you learn and then build tactics around it. Exactly. It seems, yeah. it seems like easy learning. <laughs> it's never going to be easy. It never is, is it? easier. Oh, that's so true. Well, we appreciate you. Again, Benedict Carey is his name, and the name of his book, um, it really is, it's just such an interesting idea to me. How We Learn the Surprising Truth About When, Where, and Why It Happens. It was published in 2014. Thanks again, Benedict. Good stuff, folks. Learning. Learning 101. It's true. When did you ever sit down and learn how to learn? We don't do that, do we? We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we'll be sitting at the feet of two incredible brains, science brains, BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem. We'll be talking with them up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Peaches come from a can. They were put in there, I guess, by the man. Huh. Hey, we're going to shoot it down. <laughs> shoot it down now to our good buddies at uh, BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem. to the country, gonna eat me a lot of peaches. Oh, my heavens. I was singing along before you. Do you like this? Our... Yeah. Pretty hot, isn't it? Yeah. When Spencer and I were in high school, this was... Was this big? One of the songs, yeah. I've never heard it until today. No. No, no, really. Presidents of the United States of America? I used to... Are you even American? I used to vote for the presidents of the United States. I didn't know they all joined... (laughs) Yeah, I used to when you... (laughs) No, I do. I always do and will till I die. But I didn't know they were a band. I didn't know... So this is Jimmy Carter, apparently, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan. All the dudes from Point Break... That uh, Rob Banks, they sing in a band together. That's great. With the masks. Now, do you know why I chose this song? No. Well, let me tell you. It's Emoji Day? It's Peach Ice Cream Day. It's also Emoticon Day. Is it? Oh, we thought day. you were going to go with Emoticon Day, man. <laughs> no way. Dang it. Emoticon we Day. We're going to jump you on that one, man. Uh, peach Ice Cream Day. That's excellent. Peaches are uh, wonderful. Peaches and cream, man. They come from a can. Peaches. They were put there by peaches a man. Peaches for me. Uh, wow. Where did Spencer come in? He just was sitting there all quiet forever, and then he I just popped right I was just listening in. to the conversation happening between one Jerem Jordan and Matt you, Townsend, you were, waiting for the proper time to intervene. You were thinking emoticons, 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 emoticons. Emoticons. Yeah. We hey. really had that discussion. We, if you were, ah. we, we were going to jump you on that one. Okay. We were going to jump you on that topic, not, not like, you know hey, what? we're going to get you. Meet you, us in the back alley. <laughs> you know where my office is. If you guys want to jump me. Come to my office. <laughs> hey, uh, I've got some great news. You always do. No, this is incredibly do. great news. What if I told you that there was healthy, uh, and then air quotes, bacon? Healthy bacon. Air quote bacon. Yeah. 
You gotta I have air quotes. I would not believe you. What? Well, there is. Listen to this. All bacon is healthy. No, 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 no. This is really healthy. Healthy for the soul. It's 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 what it is. <laughs> it's it's healthy for the soul. Yeah, yeah. God loves you to eat bacon. Not when you find out the new bacon. This is the one that I think he's going to want you to eat. Uh, it's bacon that vegetarians can enjoy because it's actually got no pork in in it. Lame. It's not bacon then. Lame. It's not bacon. It is. It's 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 seaweed. Again, that's not bacon. <laughs> and after 15 years of development, researchers at Oregon State University have patented a particular form of seaweed that is it's dulce to create that a delicacy that. The Associated Press reports is packed with protein, has twice the nutritional value of kale, and tastes like bacon. Of course, Oregon, <laughs> an Oregon university would produce something with seaweed. Is this not great? It's not even green. It's the same color. It's like, it's like a reddish translucent lettuce. I'm probably putting glasses on to eat it anyways just to avoid seeing what it looks <laughs> would like. You, does this not sound good? No. It's not bacon. It's not bacon. It's, it ain't bacon. It's bacon ale. It's bacon ale. Like kale, but bacon. The no. canal. I ain't aching for no bacon. Look, Matt, this is bacon. this is like getting the grossest <laughs> nutrition bar you can find that claims it's chocolate flavored, mm-hmm. putting it in front of a three year old and saying, Mmm, it's chocolate cake. <laughs> yeah. What's your it's point? It's not bacon. It's you guys, it's like translucent red <laughs> lettuce. How dare they? How it, dare they? If you even cut it go into strips, the bacon arena and say, "Oh, it's bacon." No, but if you cut it into strips and then dried it out, you would think, "Oh, wow. This bacon is good." It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> this bacon doesn't even taste Someone like bacon. Someone out there is super annoyed. They're like, "I really like that stuff and they hate it. I don't I but don't like this conversation." You know what? Think it of the pigs. That has nothing to do like the thing is if that person is out there, the one person. No, that, the one person's listening right now. They're like, hey. hey like, I, if you I do like it. it, this is not an attack on the product other you, than they're, they're calling no, it's bacon. It's on the people who consume it. Other than it. They're, calling it, they're calling it bacon. If they took the bacon title off, I'd be just fine with it. Would you be okay, would you be okay then, Spencer, if the pig that, that eventually became the bacon ate this dulce? This, De leche? This, I see what you're doing there. Are you okay if they ate it? Sure. You just don't want you don't you you would rather just eat the pig. Isn't that what we would all rather do? I don't care what the animals really eat. Does that animal <laughs> taste good or not? I don't want it doesn't have to have a name. Yeah, but you don't want and kid, a history. You don't want your pig eating bacon. <laughs> you want your pig eating like kale that tastes like bacon. I don't care. The pig <laughs> you don't want healthy. a carnivore pig. That's just bad meat. Was this was this pig healthy? <laughs> Did it exercise regularly oh, and this eat is nutritious crazy. meals? You, got, you know what, guys? I can only bring you the light. You know, what you do with it, it's up to you. Cast a shadow on it. Hey, are you guys, you know that thing you guys do at 11? Mm-hmm. Or actually, is it 11? It's, uh, yeah, 11 Eastern. Is, yeah. Are you doing that today? One. No, I, don't, I don't know. You know that one you know, thing? I'm going to wait until 9.59.59 to decide. To decide. I, I don't know. I might decide earlier. <laughs> I might decide right now. No, I'm waiting until the final second. What's on your show today? If we do it. If you were to do it. Sportscontent.com. Hypothetically speaking, <laughs> if we were to do the show today, yeah. as we have done 496 times previously. Have you really? 
That is correct. Man. Today marks the 497th edition of BYU Sports Nation. I thought you guys seemed different. If we do the 497th edition, that is. Yeah. We are talking to Brian Kill, another fast oh, Friday. Man. He's always super passionate. Yeah. Guy played six years in the NFL. He is a diehard BYU football fan. He's Keeler. And we are discussing with him today. Mm-hmm. Why will or why won't the 2015 BYU defense be better than last there year? You go. We ask this question, Matt, because last year was historically bad statistically yeah. for BYU's defense. But Broncos in charge this year, right? Everybody's banking on that. Mm-hmm. How tangible is that? How tangible is it to put all hopes on the coach and throw in a strength and conditioning coach in Frank Wintrick to solve all of the problems? Well, and the kale bacon that they'll all be eating, that will help. There's the secret ingredient. <laughs> there is the secret That's a ingredient. great question today, guys. That's you a know, great thing. They gotta, they gotta pull the, the defense has got to play or we're done. So nobody's surprised Taysom Hill on another award watch list. Which That's one? That's the bigger deal today is that the award watch lists come to an end. Hmm, sad. What are we going to do next week? Goodbye, England's Rose. <laughs> you will never. <laughs> I thought someone would join me in that Elton nope, John nope. classic. No, nope. Oh, was that Elton John? Oh, okay. Oh, You're yeah. a solo artist when it comes it's to that. I thought that was that the president's. My bad. <laughs> my bad. <laughs> I can't tell the difference. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Anything else on the show? Uh, let's see. I saw Death Cab for Cutie last night in Salt Lake. What is that? You don't know what Death... It's a band. They're from Seattle. Death Cab for a Cutie. Google it, Matt. Listen, good, good enjoy. Stuff. Experience the greatness. Yeah. Death Cab. For a Cutie. No, just for Cutie. For Cutie. Mm-hmm. I want it to be not grammatically... Not like for a Mandarin orange. I want it to be I love grammatically cuties. correct. For, for is Cutie the for name the, of a uh, person? It's for the name uh, of the a, Cutie. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll get to that. Check it out. Yeah, and then and then Monday, can uh-huh. you play some Death Cab coming? Up? <gasps> yes, we will. Okay, awesome. Ben will write that down. Awesome. Uh, you, how about, how about Soul Meets Body? We'll do you one better. Play That's something soul. from the Postal soul. Service. Oh my okay. Word. Yeah, there you go. Isn't the Postal Service actually run by the president? There's a connection. The presidents okay. of Death Cab for Cutie. Good, good connection. <laughs> you guys, now I'm totally confused. Okay, Ben, you got all that. Ben's got it. We will have that music for you Ben's next. Ben's got it. We'll get it for you Monday. Um, have a great show. If, you're, if you do it. I'm not saying. I don't want to like jinx you, but if you choose to do your show in six minutes, have a good one. Hey, did you start out today's interview with us or conversation with us by saying, hello, gentlemen? I didn't. I don't think I did. You didn't do that. I'll do it tomorrow. What the heck? I'll do it tomorrow on Saturday. You've changed. I know. I'm getting, I'm getting lazy. It's Friday. All right. You know what it was? It was peach ice cream day. Yeah, well, you better bring it on Monday, okay? You have no idea, dude. I will be getting up <laughs> at 6 o'clock. At 4.40, I'll be up ready to do that. Okay. Goodbye, peach gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you so much. See Bye, you, kids. Doc. Have a great show. But- That's funny. They, they, uh, they, they have to remind me of what I'm not doing. That's like, I, I need that. I'm falling apart here. Hey, you know on the show, we like to give you a hero. I've got a new hero today. It's actually, it happened a few days ago. But it's, uh, it's Boston Police Captain Robert Ciccolo. He made the decision that I think has got to be one of the hardest decisions you can make as a parent. Ciccolo turned his son over to the FBI after his son had become obsessed with Islam and wanted to fight for ISIS overseas. His son, Alexander Ciccolo, 23, is now set to appear in federal court, accused of planning a chilling terrorist attack in, uh, in an out-of-state college. 
He said it was certainly one of the toughest decisions that he had to make, a law enforcement friend said about Chicolo's decision. He said if he had to make it again tomorrow, he'd make the same decision. He's committed to serving the public. He spent 27 years of his life doing that. I don't think he'd hesitate in a second if he had to do it again. Knowing what he knew, he's happy that nobody was hurt, including his son. The son of the Boston cop uh, of Robert Chicolo moved up the ranks quickly. He eventually is – he's now been become um, a, a commander. And um, the cool thing about this this dad that turned his son is two – he's won two medals of valor. And uh, he's he's just an important, strong dad that was willing to, to do what he needed to do. One of the things about his son is his son uh, has been suffering with mental illness. And he has become obsessed with Islam over the past 18 months, which uh, was really making the father nervous. And eventually he just re- recently said he received a message that said that he, the, the boy said that he believed that his faith was under attack and he's not afraid to die for the cause. He sent his father a text message saying, America is Satan and Americans are disgusting. So to the father, uh, Boston Police Captain Robert Ciccolo, you are my hero of the day. We now see it, folks. We need we need parents to be paying more attention to their kids as, as things are getting a lot more uh, difficult and scary in this war on terror. Thanks for joining us, folks. That's the show. We appreciate you being here again. Remember, we can't do the show without you. We're here Monday through Friday. And again, go find us, our podcast on iTunes or TuneIn. Uh, great, great resource to give to your friends and family. And have a great weekend, folks. Make it a great one. And we'll talk to you on Monday. Take care.